Hey, welcome back to the podcast. This week, we're telling the story of Philippine Airlines Flight 434. Thanks for listening. Hi, Mama. Hi, Casey. How are you? Pretty good. Got home from work. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this with me again, Mama. Well, of course, I enjoy it. I'm glad. Um, You're today, a wonderful storyteller. Oh, this sweet of you, Mama. We uh, have a big old story. So we have the story of uh, Philippine Airline 434. Um, I'm just going to say at the top, this story includes some descriptions of um, severe injury. And I just kind of want people to be aware of that before we get into that. I know it's a bit of a spoiler, but because we're going to have to describe some of the injury. I just want people to be aware. So uh, with that in mind, Philippine Airlines Flight 434 was headed from Manila in the Philippines to Cebu, which is also in the Philippines, and then onward to Tokyo on December 11th, 1994. Uh, Our plane today is a beautiful, glamorous, wonderful 747, Queen of the Skies. So a big, beautiful double-decker plane. Uh, I had a bit of a difficult time finding the pilot's names for this one. I cannot understand why. Uh, But the captain is uh, Captain Ed. Uh, Ed is a former Air Force pilot, like so many of the other pilots we talk about. Uh, The first officer's name is Jaime. And I believe the flight engineer's name is Dex. So this is a plane, a 747, you know, old school design uh, that requires a flight engineer. So there are three uh, people flying the plane. Mm -hmm. Uh, The flight from uh, Manila to Cebu is a short little flight. Hour up and back down. uh, And then onward from Cebu to Tokyo is uh, six and a half hours. So... Nothing too fancy. The plane takes off uh, from Manila at 5.35 in the morning. So super early flight. Everybody gets up. The crack of dawn flies to Cebu. uh, And at Cebu, some passengers get off. Uh, That first flight was very light. There's not a lot of passengers on that first flight. Uh, there's uh, really, really light on a massive, massive plane. So I'm sure it's super comfy. And uh, the plane plan lands with uh, no problems in Cebu at 6.50. Uh, and a couple passengers get off and a lot of passengers get on. The plane ultimately fills up in Manila with 293 souls on board. 273 passengers and uh, 20 crew, three pilots, 17 flight attendants. Uh, And the plane takes off. Uh, It's a little bit delayed on the tarmac because of air traffic. Uh, The plane takes off about 38 minutes late. It was supposed to depart right at 8, ends up departing at 8.38. And the plane takes off no problem and heads off toward Tokyo. As the plane is flying toward Tokyo, it flies over, you know, that section of the ocean. That's a long expanse of ocean. Uh, And if you imagine your map in your mind of uh, Japan, Japan is a long string of islands. Uh, Mm -hmm. As the plane is headed there, uh, suddenly a bomb explodes under seat 26K. Mm. The plane banks hard to the right. So if we go back in time earlier that morning, before the original flight left from Manila, uh, Ramsey Youssef, who we've actually talked about a little bit on this show before, uh, woke up in Manila. He prepared a bomb that he had designed to get through the current airport security at that time. It included a uh, liquid component that he put into a toiletry bag uh, and a components from a watch that he wore on his wrist. 
and components that he stored in his shoe. Mm -hmm. Once he uh, had prepared a fake passport, uh, his passport uh, claimed that he was an Italian citizen uh, named it's where did I write it? Armaldo, which should be Arnaldo, but it's Armaldo Forlani. He boarded uh, without any difficulties. Uh, so this is in 1994. Uh, Yusuf, for those who might remember us talking about it in our TWA 800 episode, uh, or who might remember it just from knowing things, uh, Rams Yusuf had been the uh, perpetrator of the 1993 World Trade bombing, uh, which was, I mean, unsuccessful by his standards, thankfully. This is not long after that. Nobody knows that he's in the Philippines or that that's where he's ended up after fleeing New York. Once on the flight, that original flight from Manila to Cebu, he had gone to the bathroom where he assembled the bomb, taking the components that were in his uh, shoe and the heel of his shoe out and attaching them to his watch and to the liquid component that he had in his toiletries bag. When he came out of the bathroom, he asked if he could move his seat. The plane is essentially empty. So he asked if he could move to seat 26K, which is positioned directly over the center fuel tank on a 747. He placed it underneath the seat on 26K and set the timer for four hours. When he arrived in Cebu, he was one of the few passengers who got off the plane in Cebu. And as the plane filled back up, a young man named Haruki sat down in seat 26K. Four hours later, the bomb exploded. It was positioned to explode. Uh, up and down rather than horizontally in order to aim with the intention of aiming the blast down at the center fuel tank. Uh, it has obviously the uh, additional reality of uh, going up into Haruki's body. Totally unbeknownst to Yusuf, on this particular 747, of all 747s owned by Philippines Airlines, uh, this particular 747 has a slightly different seating configuration where seat 26K happens to be two rows ahead of the center fuel tank. So the seat where he planted the bomb was actually on this plane positioned over the cargo hold. So rather than exploding, uh, the plane... Uh, continues to remain essentially uh, in one piece. Uh, however, obviously, as an explosion goes off in the plane, of course, there's instant panic. Inside the cabin, of course, people immediately tried to flee away from the spot where the bomb had exploded. The flight attendants, God bless these flight attendants, uh, snapped into action, instead everybody to stay in their seats, which is important because of it had banked hard to the right. And as the pilots were trying to stabilize the plane, obviously having all of the passengers flee to one side of the plane would interrupt the uh, weight and balance even more extremely. Uh, they ordered everyone to get into their seats and to stay in their seats. And flight attendants went over to where the bomb had actually exploded. The lead flight attendant, a, a passenger who had been injured badly, and dragged that passenger away, told a flight attendant to start to attend to their medical needs. He came back to try to help Haruki. He could see... Uh, Haruki, the upper half of Haruki's body out of the hole. So Haruki had, had fallen into the hole that the bomb had it created, uh, falling down into the, uh, cargo. Yeah. thank you, that bomb had created, falling down into the cargo hold. Uh, the flight attendant went up to try to pull him out of the hole and realized that the lower half of his body was essentially gone. Oh. Haruki was still alive 
at that mm-hmm. moment. Uh, the flight attendant asked for another flight attendant to come over and they knew there was nothing at all that they could possibly do, but they didn't want him to die alone and they didn't want his death to scare the other passengers. So they wrapped his body in a blanket to conceal the fact that the lower half of his body was gone, put oxygen on, and a flight attendant continued to stay with him and essentially pretend to to provide him with care uh, even after he slipped away and died. So she stayed with him and held his horribly damaged body Mm. in the cockpit. They hear the explosion. The plane banks hard to the right. Uh, they're they're obviously using the autopilot at this point as they fly over the ocean. Uh, so the autopilot actually successfully corrects the bank and writes the plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the autopilot initially at least appears to be functioning. Uh, the captain obviously takes command of the plane. A flight attendant calls the cockpit and says... A bomb has exploded. We have injuries. You know, we need to land immediately. Captain orders the first officer, Jaime, to call Okinawa. Okinawa is currently the closest airport to where they are. Jaime calls Okinawa and says, you know, we're declaring an emergency. We had a bomb explode. We have injuries. We need to land immediately. And the air air traffic controller in Okinawa the air trafficker, why can't I see this? The air traffic controller in Okinawa can't understand what he's saying and keeps saying, like, I, what are you, I don't understand. And they're trying to explain what happened. The air traffic controller cannot understand what's being communicated and just puts them on hold. What? Uh, yeah. Another air traffic controller comes on uh, and says, you know, what's going on? They explain it again, and finally, this air traffic controller kind of understands whether it's a language barrier or just a comprehension of, you know, something so horrific, whatever the idea is. The second air traffic controller does understand what they're saying Mm -hmm. and directs them to make a right turn, right, to turn uh, east in order to go toward Okinawa. They're only about 20 minutes from Okinawa. Uh, They boop, boop, boop into the autopilot because it appears to be functioning to turn right and nothing happens. The plane doesn't move an inch. They try other inputs, uh, ascending, descending, left. Like they try, they put in what they, just trying different things with the autopilot and find that the autopilot doesn't respond to anything. It will keep them exactly as they are, flying level, straight at their current altitude, but it cannot turn it cannot ascend it cannot descend they need to figure out how to get this plane to move off of this i mean plane of existence right it's on this this single trajectory and of course they need it to respond to their commands so that they can turn toward the airport and descend to land they don't know what will happen when they uh, disengage the autopilot. They don't know if they will lose control of the plane. They don't know if they'll be able to re-engage the autopilot. We've talked about this before. It's very dangerous. If the autopilot appears to be working, even partially, you don't know what will happen when you disengage it. But they try everything they can with the autopilot and ultimately decide they have to turn it off. They have to figure out a way to turn the aircraft. The pilots disengage the autopilot and nothing happens, nothing at all. The autopilot does disengage. The plane doesn't freak out. It doesn't bank. It doesn't respond negatively. Uh, so they're in manual control of the aircraft. And again, they try to turn right. And again, just nothing happens. The plane does not turn right. The plane does not respond. Uh, we've talked before about how in a lot of these emergency situations, there's an extreme physical aspect to flying the aircraft or gaining control of the aircraft. Sometimes they're able to to gain minimal control of a plane by pushing, I mean, immense, like using all of their physical strength to 
force the the yoke to turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this case, the they Ed does just that. He forces as hard as he can, pushing, 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 trying to get the plane to turn right, and just nothing happens. The plane doesn't go even an inch to the right. So they try the first officer's controls and find that they also do not respond. So they have no aileron control at all, and they have no rudder control. They cannot turn the plane. So they use differential thrust, what we've talked about before, where they uh, a 747 has four engines, two on each wing. They uh, reduce the power on the right side and increase the power on the left side and slowly start to turn the plane to the uh, right, very slowly, these big arcing turns. They try to use their elevators to begin to descend because, again, they're close to Okinawa. They should be, like, under normal circumstances, they, it would have been 20 minutes to get on the ground. Um, but as it is, they're having a very difficult time actually getting their plane to actually land there. As they start to uh, turn and try to use their elevators to descend, they find out their elevators don't work either. So while they're able to force the plane to slowly turn using the uh, differential thrust, using the, the, the power increase on the left side, uh, they have to start to slowly decrease the power on both engines and slow the plane down gently to allow it to slowly lose altitude. So they make circles, big wide circles, and then smaller and smaller circles using just the power of their engines and nothing else to slowly, 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 literally slow the plane down, lose altitude, and turn the plane until they finally find that they're just about lined up with the airport. They line up with the runway. It takes, that whole process took an hour. So for an entire hour, there people in the back of the plane are suffering horribly. I mean, I, I, I again, uh, this explosion injured 10 people immediately. And some of those injuries were very, very severe. Of course, um, at that point, Haruki died within minutes of the original explosion. Um, But it takes an entire hour for them to slowly, 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 carefully, precisely line the plane up with the runway. As they line up for the runway, the actual landing is, uh, besides trying to get everything just right, they don't know how the plane will respond. They don't know how many of their controls are still working. They don't know how much, you know, is damaged. They can't guess that midair. They can't guess until they try this or that. Um, They're able to drop the landing gear. They line up the plane and slowly, gently touchdown. When they pull the brakes back, the brakes do work. They are able to use the reverse reverse thrusters. They're able to slow the plane down on the runway and actually successfully land this plane. Wow. Once they arrive, uh, obviously the first thing they do is evacuate. Uh, evacuate. Of course, there's, you know, medical personnel on staff. They've had an entire hour to prepare. Local hospitals had time to prepare the, you know, all of these different mechanisms that go into effect. All the different people who who step up to help in situations like this or have time to prepare. And once they land, the other nine people who are injured were able to immediately receive uh, medical care. Uh, the other 200 and 80 people actually were not injured. Like most of the people on board the plane were actually truly physically unharmed. Ruki is ultimately the only casualty of the bomb. Uh, They actually uh, initially left Ruki's body on board the plane for investigators. Because whereas, like in other stories we talk about, you know, the NTSBs who will, you know, the different 
aviation-related investigation agencies do the investigation. But this is a crime. So it's treated as a crime scene. And the Okinawa local police department are the first police to take control of the crime scene. So like in another crime scene where you would leave the body where you found it in order to investigate, they left Haruki's body on board the plane. A lot of passengers didn't realize until that moment that he was dead when people, other people were receiving medical care. And again, I, it's a horrible tragedy for this young man. He was 26 years old. It, it, him and his family, I mean, it's unimaginable. It's unbelievable that no one else died. When the Okinawa local police department arrive, they photograph everything extensively and uh, slowly start to uh, take pictures of Haruki's body and pictures of the damage. And uh, when they remove his body, uh, they ultimately discover that there are 94 fragments in his body located, you know, along the parts of his body that were connected to the seat. So it's pretty obvious, judging by the damage to his body and the damage to the plane itself, that his body actually took the vast majority of the impact of the explosion. As they're piecing things together, they're able to remove pieces of the bomb from his body, as well as collect all of the fragments of the bomb from the actual the crime scene, from the plane. As they reconstruct the bomb, I'm just going to say this right now, Okinawa local police did a bang-up job. They, I don't know how this is possible. Usually, you know, when stories start out, every crime show you've ever watched pretty much usually starts out with, you know, the local police kind of tripping over themselves in some way, especially if it's something that's so bizarre, so outside of anything they would normally see. Gotta love Japan. Uh, the Okinawa local police department did a bang-up job. They reconstructed the bomb. They, wow. they actually were able to put it back together and wow. they realized that one of the batteries that had been used in the uh, like ignition device, mm-hmm. they realized that that battery was only available in the Philippines. Uh, and obviously the plane is a Philippine airplane. The plane came from the Philippines, battery in the Philippines, but that tells them that it wasn't because uh, they don't know when the bomb was placed on the plane, right? They have no way of knowing which flight or what time it was placed on on there. So uh, they contact the Philippine version of the FBI, I reckon, you know, the Philippine officials, <clears throat> and uh, they coordinate together. Uh, the Philippines has... Uh, <laughs> so the Pope is actually supposed to visit the Philippines soon, right? So the Philippines are not messing around, right? This is a horrible, horrible tragedy, an unbelievable, just a horrible, horrible nightmare. Mm -hmm. And the Pope is coming. So they're not messing around. They're going to find out who did this, right? This is not going to happen when the Pope is in town. So they uh, go to work, the Japanese uh, and Philippine officials, uh, eventually, they contact Interpol, uh, Scotland Yard, and the FBI. So they all work together trying to uh, find out what exactly happened here. Uh, they piece together. So uh, initially, all the information you have is that a bomb exploded um, using a timer device, right, that they once they piece the bomb together, they can see that. And they can see that the bomb can be positioned in different ways. It can be positioned so that it will um, explode in different directions, right? Horizontal, vertically, diagonally, whatever. Mm -hmm. And if the bomb had been situated so that it would explode horizontally, it would have blown a hole in the fuselage, 
right? Which obviously would have been extremely damaging to the plane. Uh, but what they piece together, again, is going back to this idea that they, they reconstruct this fact that on the vast majority of 747s, this seat, 26K, is over the center fuel tank. So they mm-hmm. figure out that it really is just that simple, that that this plane, because you have no idea, you know, different uh, any given airline might have a dozen, six, whatever, 747s. And depending on what airline owned it before, depending on, you know, what year they put, they they bought it, whatever, the, the seating arrangement might be subtly different. So this plane might have an extra row of first class. This one might put the galley here or there, right? And mm-hmm. it just happened to be this plane, 26K was two rows ahead of the intended target. So they understand that the intention was to blow the plane out of the sky, right? Um, as they're uh, putting all of this together, they uh, are how can I say this? So there, there are elements of this bomb. There are there's whispers on the ground. There's uh, already existing intelligence, all these different things. As Interpol, uh, the Japanese officials, the Philippine officials, uh, the FBI, Scotland Yard, as they start to coordinate together, they come to believe that the bomb was made by Ramsey Youssef, who the FBI has obviously been looking for hard since the uh, 1993 World Trade Center bombing, uh, and. Wouldn't you know it, they get a little bit of a weird lucky break. So uh, one day, uh, Ramsey Youssef and his guys are hanging out in their Manila apartment, uh, mass producing this kind of bomb. They're trying to mass produce. They're trying to make as many of these small bombs as they can. Uh, Ramsey was treating or had uh, Ramsey Youssef had taken on a new assistant to help him mass produce these bombs. And uh, the assistant was trying to burn off a small chemical, right, as part of the process and uh, accidentally set a small fire, which Mm -hmm. they were able to put out, but the acrid chemical smoke just filled the apartment, right? So the men left the apartment and stood outside where they could breathe. They opened all the windows and and just tried to wait for the apartment to air out. But the doorman was like, hey, what's this? Fire? Like, you can't just set fire to your apartment, right? What's going on? And they explained like, no, no, you know, we just, we were playing with fireworks and, you know, that's why it's such a strange smell. There's no fire. We opened all the windows. Don't worry about it. It's all fine. And the doorman is like, not good enough. Like, call the fire department. So he goes down to call the fire department and the guys skedaddle. They get right out of there. They run. Uh, And after they run, it occurs to Yusuf that uh, obviously there's bomb making materials in there, but particularly there's his laptop. And of all the things that they need to retrieve, because the bomb making materials, whatever, it stinks to lose them, but they don't connect back to him. But the laptop has everything on it. So he, uh, they get out of there. The fire department, in fact, shows up, sees there's no fire and just leaves. Right. They don't really think they're like, yeah, not the, the fire is out. There's nothing for us to do. And they leave. Uh, but the Yusuf and his crew don't know that, right? So they are not planning to go back to the apartment, except they need that laptop, right? So Yusuf sends one of his guys, uh, you know, makes a plan, says, you know, you got to go back and, and get the laptop out of there. Uh, meanwhile, uh, our girl investigator Ada of the Philippine uh, Manila local police department, right? Yeah. Ada, God bless her. Ada. <laughs> I Ada, know I'm going to like this part. Oh, yeah. Ada, the Pope is coming in two days. Ada is not having some terrorists blow anything up in Manila while the Pope is in town. Ada's not having it. Papa is safe under Ada's watch. Okay. So she finds out that there's a weird chemical fire 
some uh, that, you know, the, the doorman still thinks it's suspicious. The doorman isn't messing around. So he calls, even though the fire department is like, no fire, nothing for us to do. And they leave. The doorman calls and Ada, this is what Ada's been waiting for. This is the kind of tip she's been looking for. So Ada heads straight over. Ada heads, Ada heads over and uh, brings her investigators. And obviously when they get there, they immediately recognize, you know, uh, this is a crime syndicate that's, you know, building mass producing bombs, right? So they're in there slowly combing through, you know, doing their stuff, taking their pictures, collecting evidence. Right when Yusef's assistant shows up to get the laptop back, right? Uh So he walks into the apartment and it's full of cops. So obviously he takes off running, right? Runs away. The doorman who's been on it this whole time sees (laughs) him running, chases him down with the cops. The guy trips, the cop jumps on him. The cop doesn't have his handcuffs and the doorman rips the cord out of his jacket and ties the guy (laughs) up with it. So the real heroes of this story are definitely Ada and the doorman. So God bless them. I love it. Love it. (laughs) That's great. Yes. So Ada and the doorman, high five over this guy and then obviously take him in and start to interrogate him (laughs) and there'll be no defenses of torture on this show um but whatever whatever happened over the next few weeks uh the pope comes to town nothing bad happens and the assistant does start to talk they have a ton of evidence from the apartment they have the laptop they have the explosives they know it's yusuf So now it's all about talking to the guy that they have and trying to get as much information as they can so that they don't just thwart this particular plan, but they also capture Yusuf, right? So the plan that they discover is uh, that they, uh, Yusuf and his cronies are going to mass produce these bombs. Essentially the uh, Philippine Airlines flight was a a trial run where to see how effective it was to see if it would work and they had a plan to uh have dozens of people board planes in the u.s uh use these bombs and have them all go off around the same time right ultimately these are the plans that eventually developed into the 9-11 terrorist attacks so this was one of their one of the plans they tried So uh, they know that this is the plan. They have uh, a lot of data about it, but they still don't have Yusef. They still don't have, they can increase security and they do. Um, Ultimately, this is why you can't bring whole bottles of shampoo on the plane. This is the reason why, even though they didn't make that rule at this time after 9-11, they made this rule. This is, this easily could have been the reason why they uh, don't let you leave your shoes on when you go through security. One of the pieces of information they get from the assistant is the exact order of how you, um, you get the bomb through security and then how you assemble it. So uh, putting the batteries and the ignition related items in your shoes. Well, at that time, the metal detectors were uh, didn't detect anything in your shoes. They, they went ankles up uh, and didn't detect your shoes at all. So you could have anything in your shoes. Uh, and in this case did. So they capture this guy and ultimately what they believe is that Yusuf has gone back to Pakistan. So they put a bounty on Yusuf's head for $2 million. And uh, once they believe he's back in Pakistan, they just publicize the heck out of this $2 million bounty. They just spread the word like wild wildfire all across uh, Pakistan. And boy, if somebody doesn't decide to cash in on that, they had a new guy that they had recruited into Yusuf's posse. And that guy did the math and said, I want that $2 million. I decided $2 million sounds better than blowing up and uh, ratted him out. And they captured him. Uh, once they captured Yusuf, they found him in a apartment working on bombs. They had in the apartment uh, 
the entire flight schedule for United Airlines and Delta and uh, dozens of bombs that they had already prepared in children's toys. That's the thing that they had decided to put them in. Wow. They captured him in Pakistan. Uh, obviously, it was a coordinated attack on Yusuf. And uh, there was like a plane waiting. They put him on the plane, extradited him to the U.S. And then he was standing trial when the TWA explosion happened. So full circle, uh, the TWA explosion, if you figure, the TWA explosion was essentially a naturally occurring version of Yusef's exact plan. So if you wonder why they were extremely concerned that that was terrorism, it was not. I cannot stress enough that TWA 800 was not caused by any human being. It was caused by faulty wiring. But you can see why when it is literally identical to what he had hoped would happen on Philippine Airlines Flight 434. So that is the whole long story of Philippine Airlines Flight 434 and how it ultimately led to the capture of Ramzi Youssef. And I don't in any way want to minimize Haruki's death, even for a second, but it is unbelievable how many people could have died. Do you remember any of this? It's okay if you don't. It's not a test. Uh, I think I remember the um, the the new rules about. Um, I think I remember the connection with the the new rules. You know that you could only take a hundred milliliters and not. You have to just start taking your shoes off. And, yeah. Um, I do remember that. Um, that came up as like, why are we going to take our shoes off all of a sudden? And they're like, oh, because somebody hid some stuff in their heel or their shoe. Yeah, if you can believe it, they actually, this event, Yusuf and things related to him, actually wasn't when they started making those rules. It's kind of crazy when you think about how quickly we change things now. But there was a shoe bomber in 2000, everyone can correct me or you should look it up yourselves because I'm not positive about these dates. But I'm quite sure that if you recall, there was the shoe bomber in 2003, I think. And he had um, actually, he had a bomb, a, a completed bomb, not a component of a bomb in his shoes and actually just got so sweaty with nervousness that it broke the bomb. That's part of what went wrong with him. He actually was just so nervous that he like sweated and it destroyed the, the bomb. Um, but that's when they actually made the rule. But when they made that rule, they cited that was when they also changed the liquid um, rule. So basically, they uh, I mean, the TSA didn't exist until 2002 at all. Right. These rules were every airport had its own rules, whatever. You know, it was security was a totally different game. So when that guy, the shoe bombers plot failed, they decided like, oh, people are going to keep doing this. This wasn't like a one-off with Yusuf. So we got to have people take off their shoes. And as long as you can make a bomb with, with that looks like regular liquid, they used a, um, Yusuf used a, like a saline bottle, like contact solution bottle to hold the explosive materials. So uh, that's why you can't bring more than a hundred milliliters unless it's medicine or water like distilled water for baby formula or baby uh-huh. formula there is a there's like a breast milk baby formula exception but uh it's a big fat hassle cuz they um have to wipe it down for explosive residue and stuff so yeah but you can bring breast milk on the plane for all the moms out there you might as well leave it in the breast. <laughs> if you can, you can't leave it in there forever. Or you're going to be sore. So you got to do what you can. Right. Yeah. I had a coworker who had just given birth and um, had to, it was so hard. She had to pump like between flights and stuff. And obviously we would have delays. And when there would be a delay, you basically have to stand there for, you know, 
four, six, eight hours, whatever. Mm -hmm. And bless her. She would just be like, I have to go pump. Like this is not a, there's no maybe or putting Mm -hmm. it off. Like at some point, this just, this is not a negotiation. This is what Mm -hmm. has to happen. So good for her. Well, I think that, um, was that at jail? Uh, no, no, that was, that was at, um, at that should be um there's protection for that need like there's legal um support for that good good do you it's not about it's after i i was um had to scramble and find time at work but it's um it's been around for a long time so that that's her absolute right to do um be given a time and privacy and all that. Good, good. A time and be. a place and yeah, it's a good yeah. thing. Yeah, it's literally the smallest possible concession I can make in a world where people have to choose between working and being homeless. So like I, yes, like you, yes, I'm very, very glad that that's protected legally. Because it is truly the smallest possible concession, I can imagine. But yeah, this is, this is, I I know that usually the investigation portion is a little lighter. And I'm pretty sure that I've almost certainly left stuff out. This was such a complex story. Um, There's a cool episode of Mayday about it. Um, It's obviously, I, I, the horror of how Haruki died is so intense and I never want to, yeah, I never want to like take away from it, but it is just amazing. It's amazing how many people could have died. I mean, this led directly and like, oh my gosh, like local police departments, yes. like the local jail, like jail, local Japan Airlines, no, the local Japanese uh, police department did such a good job. The local Manila police department, Ada, like our girl, like she, she, she wasn't going to let a chemical fire go and investigate it when the Pope is yeah. coming. She's not having it. So, yeah. Yeah. I got to dig deeper. Dig and can deeper. I just, can I just say something about the, um, the flight attendant that, oh, um, yeah. Like, that's just, oh, my gosh, I don't know if I can say it without getting emotional because um, I don't usually think of flight attendants as first responders, but that was definitely the role in that situation. And, wow, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to tend to people's injuries for an hour. They weren't able, I mean, no fault of the pilots at all, because, I mean, that plane still could have gone down even after it didn't blow up the fuel tank. I mean, it, the pilots got the plane down as fast as they could, but it wasn't, it wasn't just a few minutes. It wasn't, I mean, they had to attend to severe injury and hold a dead body. I mean, like a, mm-hmm. a very horribly injured dead body i mean like it's like a world war one injury do you know what i mean like it's such a horrifying ghoulish injury and you have to like yeah i i think the flight attendants flight attendants across the board are trained for a lot of situations they're trained on like basics of helping someone give birth they're trained on um, you know, like obviously heart attacks and injuries that I'm sure are, or things that happen on planes. I mean, they, flight attendants receive a lot of training that I obviously hope they never have to use, but of course they do. And they have to do it with stuff that's on board the plane. You know, like the, the first aid kit is only so big on a plane. They had to attend to nearly a dozen injuries severe injuries i mean really bad injuries you you didn't mention it so you probably don't have this information but i wonder if they're uh, out of that um 270 some people if there was um medical that might have lent a hand um 
several of my coworkers have been on flights that there's a call mm-hmm. out. Is there a doctor on the board? You know, is there mm-hmm. a doctor in the house kind yeah. of thing? And, yeah. uh, and, and we're asked to help with some situation or some um, passenger having, having a rough time. Yeah. So I wonder if that number of people, there might be some, they might've had some, hopefully somebody, you know, could help a little bit, but like you said, they, they are on a plane, they have limited resources available to them. Yeah. I think that's a really good thought. And I imagine, uh, like, I understand you to be imagining that on a plane with such a large number of people, you would, it would be easy to imagine that there would be medical personnel on board. Um, and I, I didn't read about that, but I know that, you know, we mostly focus on the heroism of like crews, but passengers behave very heroically in a lot of these situations. And I mean, even somebody who's not a doctor or a nurse or a medical professional, um, like there are videos you can watch of um and and different stories you can hear about passengers helping to like restrain passengers who are in fits of rage or whatever the right word would be passengers who are behaving violently and things like that so um a a passenger an everyday person might still be able to help in a situation like this you know like just compressing a wound and things like that so there were 20 flight attendants on this flight which i'm sure was a huge boon you know on such a large plane thankfully they had a large number of flight attendants um but i have to imagine that they would have asked if there were medical staff on board and it's hard to imagine that there wouldn't have been but i haven't read about that in particular did you say um, what was wrong with the um, the in the cockpit where they couldn't turn? Did you? Oh, I didn't. Did you? No, I'm glad that you said something. So thank okay. you. Thank you for bringing my attention to that. So when the explosion went off, so it went uh, vertically, right up and down. And most of the explosion upward went directly into Haruki's body. Um, but some of it also... Uh, went up and damaged the connections to the ailerons and to the rudder and to the elevators. So ailerons, elevator, and rudders are exactly what allow you to turn the plane and to ascend and descend. Uh, So those connections were all destroyed in the explosion. um, And so it caused them to jam. Thankfully, the plane was in level flight. I We've either covered stories or will cover stories about planes where any one of those got jammed uh, when the plane was in a turn or in an ascent or in a descent. And that's a terrible problem. Thankfully, the plane was in straight level flight when it jammed. So they were able to use like just the engines or essentially just the engines to to just get this very stiff plane down to the tarmac safely. But so Mm -hmm. if you imagine the ailerons are those flaps on uh, either wing that Mm -hmm. um, if they go, you know, if you want to turn right, then you might uh, put the right elevator or right aileron down and the left aileron up or blah, blah, blah. So I don't know enough about it. But and then the rudder is like the fishtail rudder and the elevators are the flaps. Um, that run perpendicular to the rudder, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And if I'm just wrong, tell me, of course, guys, but I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it just destroyed those connections. Mm. Yeah. The other investigation distracted me from the plane investigation. Yeah, so that is... The story of Philippine Airlines Flight 434, the plane went on to live a long, healthy life. The plane was fixed and continued to fly. Um, and Yusuf is in jail. And guess what? Ramsey Yusuf has my birthday. So it's just me, me, Michael Brown and stuff. So there you go. But um, 
Yeah. What's your fact, Mama? Oh, my fact. Uh, quick fact and a plug. So the number one fear of Americans polled, self-reporting, is public speaking. So I guess shy is kind of a epidemic. An epidemic yeah. of shy. And a plug for International Toastmasters. They, they can, uh, a great support group and club where you can try out your um, skills and in a really nice environment. So I'll just uh, leave it at that. Do you want to just leave it at that or do you want to share? <laughs> I, won't, I won't force you. That's good. That's good. Okay. Uh, I'll just agree. <laughs> yeah, Toastmasters is cool. And being in a club is cool. Guys, after two years of pandemic, doesn't it sound like fun to be in a club? Like, don't you just want to, like, whatever, join the Elks Lodge, do what you got to do, like, get out there, meet a human being. It's we we keep talking about wanting to do like a meetup in um, New York, but we have to all be we need our darling Mariah, by the way, um, I again, continue to promise that unequivocally that Mariah loves all of you and absolutely will be back. No question. Um, it's just that the um, family emergency that she has has been ongoing. So she loves all of you. And I know you all you all love her back. And uh, okay. thanks for special thank you to my wonderful sweet mama for continuing to help out. Yeah, and I guess we love you. And I love you, Mama. I love our love friends. Mariah. Love Mariah. Do you want to tell our friends that you love them? Sure. Love you guys. <laughs> Keep listening. Email yeah. the podcast. Very good. At uh, gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> yep. The podcast at gmail.com. Instagram. You did. I know you did. I know. <laughs> I'm merely echoing you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, love you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Pod Crashed. We so hope you enjoyed it. Uh, happy birthday to Seth, our darling BFF of the show. Um, uh, Mariah sends all her love to all of you and we're looking forward to having her back. I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode. If you want to email us, you can email us at thepodcrashed at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok. Thank you so much for your love and support during this truly wild time. We uh, promise that we'll uh, love you guys. Thanks for listening.